This episode is brought to you by Cinekit List. Cinekit List is an online community built to save you money on video production gear, offering exclusive discounts on top brands like Light Panels, Innovative, Quasar Science, Easy Rig, and more. I personally am a member and I have been for a while. I've bought several production items from this group and the pricing and quality are unmatched. They have exclusive deals such as the 50% off Quasar Science Q-Lion LED lamps that are currently running through July 31st. CineKitList negotiates discounts on cameras, cinema lenses, or large equipment orders so you don't have to. Reach out directly to Travis at CineKitList.com to find out how you can save. And, and Kevin, don't forget the Facebook group because there you can become a part of the conversation and take part in the monthly giveaways at Facebook slash groups slash CineKitList. Hey, this is Josh. And this is Kevin. And on this episode of the Filmmaker's Guide to the Industry, we have executive producer Randy Greenberg. You've definitely seen his movies because they include The Meg and Cowboys and Aliens. On top of that, he's an instructor at UCLA and he teaches the business of entertainment. Randy, thanks for coming on the podcast today. Sure. So, you know, one thing that we've we've kind of preached a lot about in the past um, and really kind of talked about in several episodes is that it's called the movie business, not the movie art. Um, it is in some cases, but I mean, when we refer to it, we say the movie business. What about it being called the movie business, especially with kind of what you teach at UCLA and everything? Uh, what about it makes it the movie business? Because a lot of people you talk to, they really kind of come into it with, you know, the glittery glitz and glamour eyes, and they think they're going to make this artistic masterpiece. And but there is a business side to what we do. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, t- to be honest, the art uh, part of what we do is the bonus part. Right. But the, the, the bread and butter is the business. Right. And, um, you know, all of this, uh, everything that's made has a litany of contracts behind it. Um, because nothing gets made in, unless there's a, there's a connection between the actual product, whether it's a TV show or a movie or what have you, that can go all the way back to the, you know, to, to the copyright, um, you know, the UCC and the copyright that, you know, that's a, that's a copyright.gov. So everything has to be able to go back to there. And the only way to do that is, and all the rights have to be together. So the only way to do that is, is with, you know, dozens, if not hundreds of contracts uh, that connect all that, that connect everybody's creativity into the product uh, or the production that's made. And then, you know, and then the owner of that, whoever that is, has the ability to, to license it and exploit it. And, um, so the business side of this business is massive. And if it turns out to be really great, you know, and artistically or, or, you know, creatively, then even better, it's a bonus. For those listening and, and they, you know, maybe don't realize just how massive the business side is. Um, you know, you're, you are a film professor and you, you specifically teach the business side. What's something that you tell your students that, um, you know, first day of class, first week of class to try to drive home that the business side of the industry is, is, you know, quite vast. Uh, the very first, uh, presentation lecture interaction that we, 
that we have on the very first day of class is with an attorney. And who literally talks about um, intellectual property. And we take, you look at a script in a very particular way, which is um, the, the script is the beginning of a business. And what's in the script can be an offshoot of the business and can go from, it could be a book, it could be, you know, it could be a comic book, it could be toys, it can be, you know, a stage play, it could be a radio blog. I mean, it can be logos, it can, you know, all these things. And it all starts with the legal process of, of the creativity itself. So the very first thing we start with is contracts. Is there, you know, for someone that's doing indie film and they they look at this, is there something that when talking about the business side that you think a lot of the independent film producers should really be thinking about first time that they come out and they create something? Because I think a lot of times, you know, at least the indie film sets that I've been on, there is a lot of stuff, even whether they're like small IATSE projects, you know, small union, smaller union projects, whatever they are. There's a lot that seems to kind of get like, you know, goes over the head or gets swept under the rug. What do you think are some of like the most important pieces or the most important building blocks to starting that business off correctly? Oh, there's so many. Um, uh, the first thing is for anybody out there who finds a project that they want to be a part of, make, film, direct, write, whatever it is, um, you need to set up a separate company from yourself. Um, so that way there's, there's a barrier to anybody suing you personally. Um, so I talk about, you know, set up a company and if you're getting the rights to a, a book or a, a screenplay or something that you put all the rights into a company and that you have a deal with that company to make it, script it, direct it, produce it, whatever it is. Um, and that way, if anybody tries to sue in regards to the rights or litigate in regards to the rights or or what have you, that they have to sue the company that's in front of you before they can get to you on a personal basis. Um, that's the, I mean, that, that's, that's one, you know, so I always advocate, you know, to any filmmaker, have a company that's separate from you um, and um, to start with. And then you definitely want to make sure that, that the right, that, that if you're obtaining the rights, to something that you want to make sure that you have the rights. You want to, you know, you want an option agreement, an option purchase agreement that spells out specifically, you know, how much is your rent? That's the option before you purchase. Right. And, and how long do you have? And can you uh, elongate that by, by paying some more money for an extension and um, when the rights revert or if they revert back to the original owner, you know, but you've made, you had screenplays written, who has, who has access to the screenplays and who has the rights to the screenplay, like all that kind of stuff. So you want to definitely make sure that you're covered so that you don't just start working and then hope for the best later. Right. Uh, Cause that's the worst thing you could do. I, I, I have a, um, 
the great example that I use in my class, and I'll give it to you guys, which is that um, I, in fact, I, I know of a, a writing duo who were a writing duo for um, several years, and they put together a project, and they had a great script, and they sold it, uh, or they optioned it. And by the time the option was up, the two writers who had written together split up. But now what they didn't have is they didn't have a contract between them that who had the right to take that screenplay and try to resell it. Hmm. And, you know, and did the other person have to approve if they resold it or they re-optioned it? Right. So, so, I mean, these things have contracts are all about when things go wrong. They're right. not about when things go, I mean, they are about when things go right, but they're the, the, the best part about contracts is that when things go wrong, there actually is a step-by-step instruction about what has to happen. And, and that's, and that's really what they're for. And when you, when you mentioned the option agreement, you know, one thing, uh, heard a lot of is that is the dollar option is especially when it's like you hear some one filmmaker that knows another filmmaker is the dollar option a real thing or if someone comes to you and be like hey you know we're friends i'll option you for a dollar is that something that they should actually consider is that like the first like warning salvo in a series of probably unfortunate um, circumstances it depends uh you know if the project is if 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 it's a if it's a book, right? If it's a book or a comic book or something like that, you probably should, you know, write it. You probably should write a check for like a hundred bucks, mm. right? And make it more substantial. Mm-hmm. Um, but if it's a screenplay from an unknown screenwriter, a dollar, you know, or ten dollars is, you know, can can be utilized. Okay, um, interesting. It, it's it, it's not about it's not about the amount. It's about the contract. Right. Awesome. Um, so what are some of the other things that you touch on? Um, just because, you know, I obviously have not been able to attend your class at UCLA, but what are some of the you other things? You are welcome to attend anytime, my friend. Really? Can I? Anytime. Absolutely. You just let me know once we're obviously, once we're back in attendance and physically right. face to face. Um, but even if we're, even if we're on, uh, on, on zoom or Adobe connect or whatever we're actually on, um, contact me and, and I'm happy to give you a guest, a, a guest pass for the week. Oh, dude, I sold in yeah, done. I'm, I'm, print it. I'm, no worries. I'm, pr- I'm pretty I, sure I you just got two, two guests right there. Um, very quickly. <laughs> Great. Well, uh, I might, en- I might enlist you to be part of, be part of the, uh, uh, the presentation that, Oh, sure. You can use me as a prop all you want. Um, I'm posable. Um, So with with that being said, what are some of the other things that you kind of cover in your class outside of, you know, obviously first day in having the attorney there is an awesome thing because, you know, when we've talked about guests on this show in the past, you know, we've got payroll companies like Green Slate and Wrapbook on, we've gotten um, insurance provider on as well. And so entertainment attorney is definitely someone that we want to have on in the future. Um, what are some of the other things that you kind of touch along in that curriculum, um, along the course of the class? Yeah. I mean, so my class is the business of entertainment, uh, at UCLA extension, and I'm considered an, an instructor and not a professor, but, okay. Um, okay. Um, but I appreciate the moniker nonetheless. <laughs> um, uh, and I've been doing it a long time. 
and I teach the class specifically because of exactly what you what you just mentioned, which is that you know most people get you know doe-eyed and starry-eyed and you know think that miracles happen and that magic happens and that you get into showbiz and then all of a sudden you're a multimillionaire. It doesn't work that way. Right. And um, and the business side of show business is massive. Uh, and, and it's, you know, there's a lot more people on the business side than there are in front of the camera, uh, right. or even the directors right behind the camera, or even the producers right behind the camera, you know, cause for every successful talent, actor, writer, producer, director, there's an attorney, there's an agent and an attorney, uh, behind them. So that's two plus a business manager in potentially a a publicist and uh, and and potentially a manager as well. So there's a lot and then their assistants and you know and then all sorts of so there's there's a lot of people behind really successful people and all of those people are all about the business side of the business. Um, right. So uh, I start off by teaching um, contracts and 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 I'm not you know I'm not turning anybody into you know a lawyer but what I am doing is I'm as I'm exposing independent filmmakers and filmmakers and, and television show writers and directors and actors and producers to the business side of creating the business, which is every single production, because every single production actually is, is two things. It's a startup business and it spends money and doesn't make money because it spends money until it's actually made into a product, right? An actual production that you could, that you can watch, whether it's right. on the big screen or the small screen. And then at that point in time, actually, then you're licensing the rights for exhibition, whether it's on the big screen, the small screen, streaming, television, home entertainment, physical, digital download, whatever it is, you license all those rights. But every single project is a startup business that actually makes no money. It, it expends money until it licenses out its own rights. So, um, so we talk about creating the business, which is the IP, the contractual uh, backbone. How do you finance that business? You know, from an equity or debt uh, standpoint, and all the other factors that go into the debt component, and then the business, and then the distribution side. And what do all those contracts look like, by the way? Um, and and kind of how do you how do you put together the equity, the debt, and the distribution in order to actually get 100% of your budget finance? Um, and, uh, and the contractual obligations behind all of that. And then once, you, and then we also, we talk about the theatrical component of, you know, what does releasing a product theatrically actually mean? And how does, how does the, how does the money come in? And, and what's the waterfall, if, if, you, if you will, in the back look like? Like, how, how do things get paid back? How does the production get paid back so that the investors make their money? How does the bank get paid out? You know, who collects all that money? Who makes sure that it's all dispersed according to contract? All of those things. And then if there is a profit, how is that actually dispersed and split amongst all of those people that would, those people or entities that would be part of that? And then I do the same thing for television. Of how do you finance television? Like, you know, where do you, you know, how do you license? How do you finance it? Where do you shoot it? How do you put the budgets together? How do you license all those rights out? And then 
and and the difference between television and feature, right? And and the business side of that, because in a feature you can have uh, a script and a director and a star, uh, but in television it's really all about the showrunner, who is the lead writer and then the head of the business, if you will, in order to ensure that it 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 uh, whatever that product is or project is is delivered on time on budget. Um, to the broadcaster, streamer, network, whatever it is, um, and then on the and then home entertainment. There's a digital, there's a digital and a physical component, uh, which also includes premium video, video on demand, uh, video on demand, uh, advertising supported video on demand, uh, subscription video on demand, right? And then finally, there's television sales. So all of those things, and then there's library and syndication, and then there's ancillary, which is the licensing and merchandising component which could be also be soundtrack and, and uh, theme park and Broadway, you know, all, and then books, right? Mm-hmm. So all of these components, right, are the business side of the exploitation of the creativity. And you have to understand how all of those components fit together or work so that you understand what the buyers are looking for, whether that's featured studios, mini majors, whoever, foreign sales agents, and from a television standpoint, the networks, the streamers, the broadcasters, the cablers, right? And then the independent, you know, the um, television uh, licensors. Like, and all of those are components into can you sell your project or not? Right. That, you know, you just laying that all out very quickly, like in it, in one stroke, kind of very much reminds me of, the first time that I went to Cannes, right? And I went into the Marche and you realize how many buyers, sellers, studio, sales agents, everyone is down there. And you're like, holy shit, you know, I am a drop of water in the bucket of what gets done. And just how you just described it is kind of like the the feature film is such a small fraction, the actual production of the movie, the making of the product, such a small fraction of everything in the microcosm of what goes on to make that one project that we really do kind of, like you said earlier, get the blinders on and concentrate so much on that one thing. Yeah. I mean, you know, when you, when you go into the bunker, I mean, obviously it's on, it's a, it's actually a virtual market right now, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but when you're, when you're physically in can and, and you go down inside the bunker, uh, which is the Palais is known, and you and you see the you see the buyers and sellers and all that, and, and, and you know, and if you're fortunate enough to be in L- in LA and Santa Monica in November, and you go to the American Film Market, it's room after room after room after room of you know yeah. sellers of material, yeah. all sorts of you know movies and you know and and most of them, you know, not of an a of an A list quality, but um, all of them, you know you know, um, with a reason to be and all of them with a business behind them of how they got made and, and why they got made and that they'll sell. And, and what you actually realize is you kind of figure out, you start to see from a business standpoint, how things, what things are worth and, and, and who's interested in what and, and the hierarchy, if you will, of the creativity. Right. Right. And with that's what you And with all that said, you have also been an executive on top of your other, you know, twenty credentials. Um, you, you've been an executive producer yourself on the Meg, uh, Cowboys and Aliens, and I'm, I would imagine I'm missing other things. 
how did you when when did you first choose to become an executive producer on those projects and and was there a once again was there a tipping point was there something that made you realize that you wanted to add that to your to your you know list of responsibilities <laughs> uh well when i was a kid and i and i and i start this from my in my class as well i i i teach this as well I always ask everybody, like, what did you want to do when you were five or six? Like when you were a kindergartner in first grade, because that's the thing more than likely that you dreamed about that you thought would make you happy and or that you pretended about while you were, you know, messing around and being a kid when you had all that time in the world to do to do whatever you wanted. And I wanted to be a film producer. So when I came into the business and I, I was a I was an intern in accounting at Warner Brothers, that was my first job. And then I was an assistant manager at a movie theater. That was my second job. Um, and then um, when I realized I didn't want to babysit high school students anymore, um, <laughs> which is the theater, which is the physical, the exhibition business at that time, that's what it was. Um, that was really, you know, high school students were the workers because it was a decent job to have and you could have free movies and, um, you know, but management were, you know, older people like myself and, and 22, you know, 22, 23. And, um, but I got a real job as the, as the, uh, in publicity, I needed a job. And at that time in the late, late eighties, so this is ages ago, mind you, um, uh, the business was hiring everywhere. Um, because the video business, which was the actual videotape business was exploding. And because of that, the business was expanding. Um, and I got a job as a, as an office peon, uh, in a PR company. Um, and I'd been offered a bunch of jobs, but this was the, the, this job, this particular job, the people in front of the three previous people that had this job had been promoted within about six to nine months. And I thought, well, I had enough money saved that I could, between what I was getting paid, which wasn't enough and my savings, I could live until I got, I could live and, and, and until I got promoted. Um, but I always wanted to be a film producer. And, but, um, when I, when you're a producer, you don't get paid until a movie or a production starts. And meaning literally that it's going to happen. There are tens of thousands of projects out there, but only several hundred that shoot at any time. And when they shoot or they start what we call pre-production, where you're where literally you're building sets and getting ready for that first day of principal photography, that's when you start getting paid. But years go, you, you, can, you can be working on a project for years before you get to the start of principal photography, the actual a start date of, of the start of principal photography. And between the time you start with something and that start of principal photography, you got to make a living. Um, and, you know, unless you're fortunate to have, you know, uh, you know, money behind you or, or, um, you know, or you're independently wealthy, that, which is the same, um, you know, I, I needed a job. So, uh, and I thought the best part would be learning the international business because in the late eighties, um, the international business was starting to explode. And mind you at that point in time, I think domestic, the domestic business was worth 70, 75% of all the revenue and the international business was worth the rest. And now it's flip-flopped. I mean, now right. the international business is worth 70 to 75% of all the money. And domestic right. is worth is worth the difference. Um, 
so I wanted to learn international. So that job in PR I took was for was with a uh, an international PR agency, and I, I I wound up learning international and and um uh and 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 was very fortunate to do so. And then that knowledge coupled with uh, business affairs uh, and negotiations led me into being um, an executive producer. Nice. What was the first project that you executive produced? Well, the first I've, I've worked on, I've worked on a lot of projects, like probably a hundred at the moment, only three have actually been shot. Mm. Um, and, but the very first project I worked on that got made, um, was, uh, Cowboys and Aliens. Nice. And, uh, the second project that got made was from the same comic book company, which was, um, uh, a project called Dylan Dog Dead of Night, which was based off of an Italian, um, graphic novel series called Dylan Dog. Um, who's a consigliere between the werewolves and the vampires. Um, and he kind of keeps them, keeps them from killing each other. Um, and um, sadly, we didn't do... The original script was really great, um, or the script that was greenlit was really great. But by the time, you know, there's all sorts of uh, compromises that are made along the way when you don't have enough money or not all of the, the companies involved are doing it for the right reasons. Mm. Um, so you make compromises and sadly that was, uh, that was a movie that started off with a really great script, but ultimately wound up with a really bad movie. So, but I, I know some people who really like it and I'm, I'm appreciative of, of those people that really like it, but, um, um, I'm sorry that that movie didn't turn out better than it, than it did. When you, when you say comp- companies that come in for the, don't come in for the right reasons, what are those? Is it, is it purely financial gain or, and, and not caring enough about the actual product or is it too much thinking about just the art art side of it? What's kind of like a, the warning signs with something like that? It usually is all about money. Hmm. When, when things go bad, it's usually all about money. Hmm. Um, not, not creativity. Um, you know, and, and, and sometimes, you know, companies are looking to fill out a slate. They, they need so many movies in production at a certain time because they're selling movies to a lot of buyers and they need enough movies to keep going through the pipeline, that kind of thing. Or, you know, or, you know, some companies literally have to maintain a certain level of income that comes in and they're able to, you know, they're able to to get money, make sales, um, but they just have to find enough projects to keep, you know, to keep getting fees out of the projects to keep the lights on in their business. Mm-hmm. And, and some people make decisions for the wrong reasons, you know, and, and which is really, which is the other thing that's really important to know is that in this business, the actual physical making of time is really short, right? The actual physical production when you're shooting is a really short period of time, even if it's like, even if it's a big budget movie of, you know, like $250 million, you may only shoot for five months. Right. Right. But the, you know, but the lead up before shooting could be five years and the, and afterwards it could be another year of visual effects. So, but which means that there's a lot of time that you interact with all of the other people that are the producers, executive producers, 
lead filmmakers and top talent, you interact with them for a long period of time before and after the project is made, before it comes out. And you got to get along with them. And everybody, again, when everybody's kind of at doing it for the, for the same reason, for the same agenda, then everybody can work in tandem, you know, trying to get to the same goal. That's yeah. hard to do, which right. is exactly why you see at certain times every year, the magic of filmmaking, right? Where you walk out of a movie, let's just talk about movies for a moment, where you walk out of a movie and go, that was awesome, right? Where the acting was good and the directing was good and the visual effects were good and the stunts were good and the script was good and like, you know, everything about it was really good. There's very few times, maybe a half a, maybe a half a dozen a year, maybe, right? The rest of the movies are just kind of, ah, that was all right. Right? Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah, so when you sure. get to that, oh, that's awesome. That's when you can feel it, when everybody's working for the same goal. Right. And when you walk out and you go, ah, that was all right. Somebody didn't bring their A game that, you know, all, all those days. Hmm. Right? You know, again, you have to, like, you know, again, the filmmaking takes days, weeks, months to do, but yet that 90 minute, two hour, you know, 90 minute or two hour movie unfolds as if there's, you know, yes, it takes days or weeks or whatever. And the story unfolds, but you feel like you're just getting, like it's, it's an edited together snippets of, of what this was, of what the story is. Right. And that those characters never come out of character, but in reality they do. Right. And, you know, one day that actor or actress could be having a bad day. Their dog could have died. It could be in the hospital. Mom may, you know, have cancer. You know, everybody's human. They could just wake up and just be in a bad mood for no reason or sad for no reason or be in a really great mood. And, you know, so when the mat, so again, and that's everybody, right? Not just who's in front of the camera, but right. the production designer and the costume designers, you know, if the costume designer, like, when costumes look wrong, right? You just you know. You can feel it. Yeah. Yeah. When the production design just doesn't seem right, right? When the set decorations, like, it just doesn't seem right, right? That doesn't seem like that's the office or the home that that character would, in, would really live in. You can feel it. So, but it still gets made and it still gets shot. And what you get is, that's when you walk out and go, eh, that was all right. Right. But when you walk out and go, that was awesome, that's the culmination of everybody involved bringing their A game every single day to the set, or and even before and after. And everybody's doing it because, for the right reason, for whatever that reason is, but they're all doing it for the right reason. And then that's when you walk out and go, that was amazing. Yeah. And because the second set decoration was great, and the costumes were great and the writing was great and the lighting was great and the actors did a great job and the visual effects were really great and the stunts were really great, right? Or, you know, or the, the romance was really great. Like, you really felt that these characters were really together, you know, or like, you know, in A Star is Born from a couple of years ago, like, you really felt that, you know, Bradley Cooper could sing with Lady Gaga, right? right. And yep. he, could, he could hold his own and he could really play the guitar and, he and they had really a strong chemistry together like, as well. Yep. And he could really be in front of thousands of people and sing. It's like, like 
the magic of filmmaking. When it happens, it's amazing, right? And that's when everybody brings their A game and they're all in it for the right reason and the same reason, right? And um, but that doesn't happen very often, sadly. Yeah. Lightning in a bottle. So It is lightning in a bottle. That's exactly right. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's the exact same thing that we all feel on the same, on, you know, we feel individually. Like we get up one day and everything clicks. Everything just works. Like think, we just feel like we're on top of the world. And, and that same thing happens in filmmaking. Yep. Do you think it's going to be harder for those kind of movies to come out because of just the plethora of uh, platforms that content's coming out now? I mean, you just name a company and they have their own platform coming out along with you know, movies that are by big studios, indies have, um, avenues you have, you know, you obviously have like the YouTubes and everything like that. Do you think it's just going to be harder for that? Cause more and more content's flooding the market. Um, okay. Take this the right way. Cause I'm not sure it's, it sounds awful in my head at the moment. <laughs> I'm okay. not sure. I'm not sure that your question is the right one. Okay. That's fair. I think the question, I think the question, I think you have to understand where the business is going. And then the question really is anything that's made that doesn't come out of a franchise, a brand, or a network streamer or studios library, where do those projects fit? Mm. Right. So yeah. I think that. The streaming services as we move forward, because as you're saying, like all these all these media companies have their own streaming services. Well, that's the world and that's the world we're moving into now. And so all of these studios and networks, right, they're gonna have a single right now that each of the each of the distribution avenues has its own creative team. So the television have its own creative team and the film have its own creative team, and the home entertainment has its own creative team. That's not the way it's going to be anymore. It's going to be a single creative team that starts working on a project and then they will collectively decide what's the best distribution mechanism for that creativity, right? Is it theatrical? Is it television? Is it, you know, video on demand or is it streaming, right? Is it television length? Is it feature length? So it's all going to be, it's all going to be, you know, like that. And the studios are going to exploit their back catalogs, their libraries for new material. They're going to look at what universes do they have that already exist in their, in their libraries, like for the sake of discussion, Warner Brothers has in their library from, uh, from the mid-80s or so a movie called Gremlins. And yep. it's, it, uh, you know, it's a sweet little movie from Amblin Entertainment at, the, at that time. Well, sweet. I mean, it's got some, it's got some scares to it. But... Um, there's a universe in that there is a there is a universe and a world within Gremlins that they could exploit, right? And and they could go back and 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 kind of you know pull it like dough and kind of figure out what's you know we don't want to make a loaf of bread for sandwiches we want buns, so you know how do we make something that's more you know that's that 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 that's a little different but yet from this world because then they can say from the executive producer Steven Spielberg from the world of gremlins and mm -hmm. on, put it on HBO max. And all of a sudden you have a piece of entertainment that has some weight and validity to it because it comes from something out of the library versus right. 
you know, Joe, you know, Jane Doe, uh, you know, has written a script and she's directing and it's a $4 million romantic comedy and you don't know anything else about it because it's a independent movie that, you know, Jane, that Jane's made. Right. The question really is where does that, um, you know, where does that project fit in terms of distribution? And that's a good question because we're undergoing seismic shifts at the moment as to, you know, where does independent film really go? I would love to see YouTube as the independent film hub uh, where they really started buying independent film. Because I think like Amazon and Netflix, they're buying independent movies, but they're, trying, but they're really trying to make them Netflix originals, right? Is right. the idea. Versus YouTube... You know, and it's still kind of branding, but YouTube could be the the independent, you know, place. Right. You know, if if they chose to, that's a, I mean, that's a that's that's you know, that's a again, it's a business decision because in the end, it's all about money. How much right. money can we make off of actually being that that new brand? And 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 I don't have the answer to that. What and in this kind of new world, where do you think? theaters, you know, live in this, uh, do they, I mean, obviously theaters can't keep, and you've had some experience with it. So obviously they can't keep doing business as usual. So what can the theaters to do to even try and keep up, you know, AMC said, we're going to start streaming movies, but you know, those are all, they're not the new movies that are coming out. So, and I don't feel like it's something simple as we're just going to all put in leather seats, you know, or a restaurant. So what do you think that the theaters can do to also modernize and keep up with this kind of demand to watch content where we want to, and then the comfort of our home? Um, that's a good question. And I'm not sure anybody really has an answer to it yet. Right. Um, the majority of theater business is going to stay the big budget movies from the studios. Right. The Jurassic Worlds, the, you know, the Avengers, you know, um, those types of movies, you know, the next Meg, you know, it's like, I mean, because the business paradigm that those movies are built on is a theatrical release is the initial release. And then there's the avenue of ancillary revenues after that. Right. And when you remove the theatrical component from it, um, the question is, is all the other revenue streams worth the same amount of money it would have been otherwise, or is it worth less? And the answer is it's worth less. Um, not worthless, but worth less. Right. And, um, and I think the, the, the perfect example is Trolls from yeah. its release in April. And as much as Universal wants to tout that they did an, ama that they did an amazing job, the answer really is, they had already spent so much of their marketing budget for the theatrical release already right. that they kind of had lightning in a bottle to be able to actually release it on a premium video on demand model uh, because they had spent, you know, somewhere between 40 and $50 million in marketing already. Right. So rather than lose that money, you know, they chose to put it out on premium video on demand. Now the theaters weren't pleased about it, but, you know, what are you going to do when you're in the, when your theaters are closed? You're not going to, you know, so you don't have anything to argue about. Right. So 
they put it out and they said they made a hundred million dollars, but you know, they still spent a hundred million dollars to make it. They still spent $40 million to market it. And in the end, what they got back was 70 million out of the hundred. Now, I don't know how much more they made after that initial week. So even if it, you know, even if it was like 50% more, you know, so they made another 35 million, they made $105 million domestically. Let's just say that Universal did that. They still spent 140 to make the movie and to market it. So they're still in a lost situation. Now it may not be huge and there still is a physical home entertainment and a digital home entertainment component to it. And there still is a rental component to it, but I don't know that their international business is as big as it would have been had it been out in theaters. Right. And then what's the rest of the television licensing and how does that drive to be perfectly honest? How does that drive the ancillary business, which is the only thing that trolls is really interested in, which is the toys, mm. right? And all that yep. licensing and merchandise. And the music licensing and all right. that. Yep. So, so I don't know if that really worked for them or not. What I can say is this, is that had that movie come out in the movie theaters and, and had opened to 40 million 45 million and ultimately did 130 million in the movie theaters while the while the revenue stream to the studio may have been the same right the overall perception in the marketplace was that the movie would have been bigger because it was out theatrically there's a there's a there's a socialized um iconic visualization understanding that we have, and that's a really bad way to put it, but I was trying to figure out as we, as I kind of talked it through. There's something about having a movie out in the movie theaters that does well, certainly over $100 million, that has a societal impact in the down market revenue streams. And right. without that theatrical release, you know, seemingly being successful, those down market revenue streams are impacted. Um, right. So um, I, I think... I think you're going to see big movies still released in the movie theaters and that's still kind of the bread and butter or the popcorn and the Coke, if you will, for the right. movie theaters. And, but I think there's going to be a, a real rationalization of, you know, movies that, you know, that are, that are romantic comedies haven't really worked at the movie theater lately. Right. Mm-hmm. But, you know, big, big dramas haven't really worked at the movie theater lately. Maybe they just don't get released, you know, or do the theater chains band together to, to, to have an, their own distribution mechanism so that they bring in varied content to kind of broaden out their base and, 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 and appeal to their consumers. They tried that with open road and it kind of didn't work. Hmm. Um, but, uh, but I'm not sure that the theaters, the, the theater chains utilized open road exactly like they should have. Right. Um, but, but I mean, who knows? I mean, there's other opportunities. The studios and the streamers could buy the theater circuits as well. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's that chance. You're definitely going to have theaters that are going to close and won't reopen. Uh, there's definitely malls that are going to close and not reopen. So, right. you know, we certainly have a shakeout within the exhibition business. The question is, you know, how many theaters will be left? What companies will be left? And, right. and, and, um, but, but I still think that people want to go to the movie theaters. Yeah, right? I agree. We, we want agree. to get out of our house and see something on a massive screen and, and be, you know, and cry and laugh and be scared collectively with other people. Yep. 
that, that that's one thing when I when I discuss this with people all the time, I I use Wes Craven's quote all the time about you know how the shaman would tell stories around the campfire, and how there's that collective you know experience to cinema. And I agree that we're never going to really want to get away from that. Maybe we do it less. I don't know. But um, so in the case of trolls, you you know bringing up trolls, that's an interesting point. Do you feel like if more films do what trolls did, which is do a release like that. Do you think they will have it at the premium release for longer? So rather than, you know, in the theater for one to two to three months, is it at the premium release for like six to eight months before it goes to, you know, the lesser or before they offer it up on DVD in order to try and, you know, keep up the revenue of going straight to digital? Um, Or do you think that it'll kind of be the same window before they then go to the ancillary? I don't know. That's a good question. I I think that, I, I think that, I I think that the student, the, the exhibitors have to come to the realization that the audience wants things faster Hmm. than, than they would like, than than the exhibitors would like. And I think that the studios have to be, in terms of theatrical exhibition, that the studios have to be a little more circumspect and empathetic to the the plight of the exhibitor and provide them either with better terms on True. on product that is not necessarily a slam dunk in theatrical. Because um, there has to be an incentive for the exhibitor to take it. Right. Right. And to put it on their, you know, their their shelf space, if you will. And if there's an incentive for them to take it, then, you know, they might do a better job. I, I think, I think we have a really bad, we have a really bad marketing issue between studios and exhibitors. The exhibitors really do a poor job of marketing to their consumers because they they really don't do marketing aside from. Aside from, you know, trying to sell subscriptions now, a monthly subscription, you know, so that you can, you know, or, or a monthly um, fee, right, that you pay, mm-hmm. you can see whatever you want or see certain movies every month or whatever it is. Um, you know, the exhibitor itself doesn't actually do is a very good job marketing to the consumer, whereas the studio, you know, or the, the, the distributor is actually doing the majority of the marketing. And neither one wants to work in tandem to either get or provide the actual consumer data, right? Because right. The, the exhibitor wants to sell the consumer data to the studio. The studio thinks that the consumer data should be its because they're the ones that are actually putting out the product. So it's a really difficult uh, proposition, but it's one where the studios and the, and the exhibitors have to figure out a way to work better together to increase the business and broaden out the consumer base that's going to the theaters. And I don't have an answer for it. I wish I did. Yeah. 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 I mean, we're, we're definitely getting into the weeds of what if scenario. Um, and you know, so I'll kind of bring it back to, you know, the real world application of everything, you know, you've, you've talked about how you had a lot of projects, but only so many of them have actually made it through. So, one thing that really interests me is how, when you first come in contact with a project, do you size up the opportunity yourself? Like 
what are you running through on that project that says this X, Y, and Z means this is something I should be involved in compared to project B? Um, well, so I sat on the green light committee at universal and was responsible for, um, saying yes or no, you know, for the theat for international theatrical on projects. Um, mm. and not only saying yes or no, but having to have a reason as to why is there, why was there a yes or why was there a no? And right. usually it, it stemmed from the no's, the no's weren't a no, they were, we believe that the that the we can do this amount of business and revenue, but it, and it's going to cost us this amount of money to get that revenue, and the profit we can make from it is not enough to either cover our expenses or it's not enough in order to cover the cost of making the movie, you know, or at least what we're supposed to be covering. Right. And um, um, so, in that vein, I learned the the financials of projects, um, understanding what it was going to cost to make something and understanding what the, what, what the revenue stream would be, not just from my standpoint where in international theatrical where I was, but also domestic theatrical and home entertainment and television. Um, and I've kept up with, I've kept up with those numbers and conversions and percentages, you know, mm. since then. Um, and I can put, I can construct, a pretty good um, return on investment spreadsheet, um, obviously in various scenarios based on budget and and when it's released and all of that. But I can come up with a pretty good idea of whether or not something has an opportunity to make money. That's the one thing. Mm -hmm. um, but it's, it's it starts with whether you know it really starts with whether or not I like it. Because mm. again, just as as I said to you before, the amount of time you actually spend physically making the movie is a really short period of time, right. but the amount of time you spend well prior to that, it could be, you know, anywhere from, you know, it could be anywhere from a year to 20 years. You know, the producer of Meg, um, uh, the lead producer on, on Meg, Belle Avery, she had the rights to Meg for eight years before it got made. Wow. And 10 years, a total of 10 years before from the time she had it, to when it came out. So, and she didn't get paid for any of that time until it got made. So right. for eight years, she was working on it for nothing. Right. Believing that it needed to be made. And when um, my wife's literary agent um, is the one that connected me to Belle Avery, my wife's literary agent was the same literary agent for the writer of the Meg books, Steve Alton. And the agent asked if I would take a meeting with Belle Avery. And when you're, when your wife's literary agent asks for a favor, you say yes. And I, said yes. I said yes. And uh, I met Belle and she's an, on top of being a really great producer. She's an amazing human being. And, um, and it was somebody that I knew that, you know, even if this movie never got made, that this is somebody I could work with and like working with and get along with, and it would be enjoyable and it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be a fight. It wouldn't be an awful situation. It would be, you know, even, even when it was difficult and there were plenty, plenty of time, plenty of times where it was difficult, that it would still be a really good, a really good, uh, uh, a really good team that, that it would be good to work with her. So, and, um, so that's, I mean, so it's really about, do you get along with the people and do that are involved already? 
and do you like the project? And then after that, how sellable is the project? Is it something that hasn't been seen? Is it something that, that needs to be seen? Is it new take on something? What is it? And, and I believe I have a pretty good gut instinct for that to begin with, but then I put, I can put the financials to it and the legal basis to it, although I'm not a lawyer, but I function as a business affairs exec. Um, can I, can I structure it in a way where there's a real opportunity for all the investors and the filmmakers to make money off of it? So when she reached out to you and you, you know, realized that you, she's a good human being and you actually felt like you could work with her, from that point to when the project got uh, greenlit, how, how much of a process was it from first point of contact to, you know, when you guys actually truly started the... I, I use it loosely, the pre-production process, even though what you were doing was pre-production as well. So I was originally impro- approached in uh, 2014. And um, I think I started mid-14 or late, something like that. And the project... Um, started shooting in uh, late August, early September of 16. So I was on for approximately two years before, uh, before payments started, right? Before the movie got made, which means that producers got paid. Um, but the pro- when, I, when I came out, I was pretty fortunate. Um, Bell had already sourced uh, some, if not the majority of the money. Um, and she had the project... The script was in a good space, um, and I was brought on to look at merchandising and licensing, product placement, and distribution and marketing from a worldwide standpoint, um, uh, except for China because uh, the financing came out of China and the Chinese financier was also a distributor. Kevin. Josh. Well, normally we would be doing our outro here, but uh, yeah, that episode was too good. Yeah, Randy continues to talk, give us great insight. He's going to be on for part two coming up next week. It's the end of the podcast, so what does that mean? It means that if you're listening, we want a follow and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you listen to your podcast. Check us out at fgipodcast.com as well. Yeah, and follow us on the social medias at fgipodcast. Hopefully you've gotten something out of the episode, so we really appreciate the support by leaving your likes and reviews.